open up with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Book of Daniel, chapter 2. And we'll read from verse 31 to 36 this morning. Number 556 in your Bibles. Page oh, sorry. We've got the same Bibles. Look at Daniel. So you've got to pass... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just after them. Okay, read with me if you found the place. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to 36. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet uh, that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Let's, uh, let's pray before we look into God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this blessed time that we can look into your word. And I ask this morning that you prepare our hearts, that they may be fully opened to your truth, that we might take that truth into our hearts, into our lives, and it may transform us from the inside. Father, we just pray that as we leave this place today, once again, that we would leave differently than when we first walked in and that we'd live uh, a life challenged to live more for our Saviour, to give, to give all for him because he gave all for us. I ask that you bless us now as we look into your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. As most of you know, we're, we're actually doing a series on what's called the Olivet Discourse, which are chapters 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. And the Olivet Discourse centres around a couple of questions that the actual disciples had asked Jesus when they were together in the temple. So one day they're leaving the temple and this thing was absolutely glorious. And this was probably one of the most grandest uh, buildings in the, uh, in the ancient world and probably would still be today if it was there. Uh, and as they're leaving, they said to Jesus, look, Master, look at all the, look at these magnificent buildings. And Jesus' response to, to all the wonderful work that men had done to build this thing up was, um, to tell you the truth, there will come a day when not one stone will be left one on top of the other. Now, that probably upset the disciples because they probably thought to themselves, well, what would that mean? In order to demolish a building of this particular size, it must have been the end of the world. So they asked Jesus and they said, Master, what will, what, will, what will that mean? When will this be? When will this come to pass? And what will be the sign of your coming which, and the end of the world? And they asked him that specific question. And Jesus then takes the next two chapters answering these questions or these questions in very minute detail. Now, 
a lot of the a lot of the answers that Jesus gave have references that you can actually cross-reference with the book of Revelation. But what I've chosen to do um, is go back a little bit because the book of Daniel is an amazing, absolutely amazing book. And we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. We started looking at this particular dream that happened here in, in this particular passage. Um, and King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the, the supreme ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Now, a number of Jews had been exiled to Babylon. Uh, remember that song, By the Rivers of Babylon? Okay. That was a Jewish song that, that was basically, and it was popularised, I think, in the 70s as well. Um, that, that song uh, meant, or was actually written by the Jews because they lived in exile in Babylon. They were taken captive because they hadn't been doing what God had told them to do. They weren't living peaceably. They weren't following him in his commandments. And God basically withdrew his protection upon them so that the king of Babylon was able to completely overrun them. Now... They were, they were stuck in this particular uh, environment for a long period of time. And Daniel was one of these young men that had been brought over. And Daniel himself was royalty. And he was a very smart and intelligent young man. And he and a number of his uh, young associates were groomed to become counsellors to this king. Okay, So even though they were, they were Jews, they were groomed, they were given new names, Babylonian names. And they were trained in their universities and in their schools to become wise counsellors to the king. So what happens is this. King Nebuchadnezzar, greatest man in the world at that particular time, has a dream. And what ruins him is that he can't remember the dream. And he was so he was so stirred, he was so terrified by this dream that he had, he probably woke up in a sweat, but he couldn't remember the dream. So he calls all his wise men to come in. He calls the astrologers, the diviners, the magicians, the all these different people that that were wise in his sight to come in and tell him his dream. So they use all different types of things to try to, to work things out in those days. And I actually raised this um, with us a couple of weeks ago that a lot of the things, the magicians, the sorcery, the divination, all this sort of stuff still exists today. And you know what they were able to find, those, div those diviners, those sorcerers, those astrologers? Were any of those able to discover what the dream was? Absolutely none of them. But then what happens is news gets to the ear of Daniel. Because then the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, gets so upset that no one's able to tell him what this dream is and what it means. He decides to kill them all. When you're the king, you can do anything you like. He decides to kill all of these uh, wise people okay, in his kingdom. The news gets to Daniel, and Daniel was part of this wise group, in a sense, although Daniel wasn't an astrologer and he wasn't any of those things. So he asks for an audience with the king, and he says to the king, what's wrong, king? And the king tells him his problem, and Daniel goes, give me a night. Give me one night, and then I'll get back to you. So Daniel spends, and he allows him, and Daniel spends that night with his friends, and they pray. And that night, God gives him the actual dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has and the interpretation of it. And this is what you saw in verse 31 to 36 is Daniel telling the king, King, this is what you dreamed. You dreamed of a statue. And the statue had a head of gold, a chest and arms of, of silver, a waist of brass, legs of iron and feet and toes that were like iron mixed with clay. And Daniel then goes on to explain about this what this dream actually means. And we looked, we looked at part of this two weeks ago, and we saw that 
we saw that, um, and I'm going to go ahead of myself a little bit over here because I want to tell you everything. I'm getting all excited. Um, Daniel was able to tell the king his dream, first of all, because the Lord revealed it to him. And the Lord knows everything. He knows what dreams we, we, we dream. He knows what thoughts we have. He knows everything before, during, and after any event. Okay, There is nothing that escapes God's attention. And God knew the dream that Nebuchadnezzar have, had, and he was the one who planted the dream. He was the one who planted the dream in Nebuchadnezzar's mind because that dream of that, of that statue turned out to be a prophecy about the, the empires of the world starting from Babylon and finishing up at the end of the world. You might say, well, how does that, how does that work? Well, it's actually quite simple the way it works. It's very, the, the actual explanation is not overly, um, not overly complicated, but the amazing thing was about this particular dream that it foretold all the empires that would come after Babylon before they even existed, way before they even existed. And we, we had a look at a few of those last time. So, listen, as we're, we're looking, as part of this Olivet Discourse, we're going to be looking at the coming Antichrist. We'll be looking at the coming one world government, which is being prepared right now, as it is. Okay, The false prophet. The Bible talks about a false prophet, a false world religion that will come into play. Um, it will. It looks at, we'll look at the book of Revelation. So, we're looking back at Daniel now, to give us a bit more of a foundation as to what's going to come in the future. Now, look at verse 38. It says there, Now Daniel presents the interpretation of the dream to the king and says in verse 38, And wheresoever the, ch the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the, of the heaven, hath he given into thine hands. So he's basically saying, King, God's allowed you to become king. And everything in this world is under your dominion because God has given it to you and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Okay, so the King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire represents the head or is represented by the head of gold in this statue. And it starts off with him. Now, were there, were there countries and nations before them? Of course there were. The Assyrians were before them, a number of other um, nations before them. But world powers? No, the Babylonians were the, were the greatest at that time. And it starts, it starts with him. Okay? Um, we saw two weeks ago that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire was the head of gold. And after, and after um, uh, Babylonians, Babylon, Babylon's demise, after they it succumbed, a new ruler, a new world empire came into play, and that's verse 39. And it says, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. So we looked at those three kingdoms. Now, the kingdom that overtook the Babylonians was the Persian Mede Empire. Okay, the Median Empire and the Persian Empire together. And the amazing thing about that is before it actually happened, God had already said, this is what's going to happen. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the supreme rule of the world. There was no reason to, to expect that the Persians were going to come up and overtake them, but they did. Okay, And Cyrus, the king of, of Persia, overtook Babylon and it was actually King Nebuchadnezzar's son, Baltasar, I think his name was, 
that lost the rule and lost the power, supreme power that he had. So the Medeans and the Persians join together and they are represented by a chest of silver and guess what? Two arms, which is interesting because they are they are represented by two types of people joined together in one in one nation. Okay. Following this, okay, who was the one that took over the Persians? Who defeated the Persians? For those of you who have watched the, the movie 300 or anything like that, you'll understand that the Persians were giving the Greeks a pretty hard time. And the Greeks resisted for a number of years until a particular guy called Alexander came up. Okay, now, his father was a pretty astute general, and he was actually quite successful himself. But when Alexander the Great came up, came along, he took it to another level. He defeated the Persians and ruled all the area that the Persians ruled and even more. Okay? Now, it says there, it says there that it's represented by a, a waste of, of brass, and that was Greece. So you have gold, the golden head, which is Babylon, the chest of silver and the arms of, uh, of silver, which is Persian uh, and Media, and then you have the waste of brass, which is represented by Greece. Hundreds and hundreds of years before these things ever happened, this uh, was, was identified in Daniel. And there are other prophets that actually give you more detail about it, which we, can, we don't have that much time to go into because it's a sermon, not a lecture. Okay? But look at verse 40. And today we'll be looking at the fourth kingdom. And it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. You know who overthrew the Greeks? The Romans. The Romans had a very good use of iron. They, they were an absolutely um, brutal uh, nation. And they conquered the world larger again. Okay, in six, uh, 168 BC, the Romans overthrew the Greeks. Now, Alexander died at a very young age. Alexander died at about 33 years of age. But amazingly, by 33, he had conquered the whole world. And God actually predicts that he would die at a young age and that his kingdom would be split amongst his four generals. Actually, you know what's funny? It says that the, the prediction states, or the prophecy states that Alexander would conquer the world in a short amount of time like a leopard. It actually said he was, he'd run like a leopard across, but then he'd die. And this leopard had four wings. And those four wings represented the four generals that his kingdom was split up into um, over the, uh, after he died. And it says that his kingdom would not be given to his prosperity, posterity, which are his children. Because normally, if you were an emperor or a king, where would you pass your, your power onto? Your kids. You know what they did when he died? They knocked off his family. They killed his family. So only the generals took over. And some of you might have heard of the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic kingdoms. They were his generals. Okay? And Israel was under a number of those, those, those kings over time. But by the, by the time Jesus comes around, the Romans are in full control. Full control. The Romans ruled all of Europe, the Middle East, into North Africa for... Uh, at least 650 years before it fell. Okay, It was the greatest empire the world has ever known and lasted for a period longer than Babylon, Persia and Greece all put together. Those three world empires lasted for 437 years. 
Rome lasted for over 650. And if you count when it splits up uh, into the Holy Roman Empire, it lasted over 1,500 years. And there are some even saying it's never finished at all. It's actually never, never really disappeared. But we'll look at that possibly next week. The history of Rome is pretty obscure, though. Look, how did it start? There's a, there's a bit of a, um, there's a legend that says that, um, that, that Romulus and Remus were the ones who actually started or founded the city of Rome in 753 BC. And the city itself, Rome, is named after Romulus. Well, it's named after Romulus because he knocked off his brother Remus. So it was named after himself. And he became the first king of the city of Rome. Now, understand, in those days, you'd start off as a city. And remember the, the Greeks they had were called city-states? Well, Italy was very much the same. Each city had a particular king. And these, these city-states, okay, all independent, would fight with each other okay, to gain land. And the larger and larger you got, the more successful you got. Well, Rome started with a city, the city of Rome. And then it grew and it grew, took over more land and more land, had more conquests, became better and better at what it did, until eventually it ruled the whole world. And it ruled with a particular system. Okay? Um, Rome began as a kingdom around 800 BC, but it started off as a republic. Guess where they got that idea from? The Greeks. Okay? And they got their ideas from, from the previous kingdom as well, from the previous empire. So it started off as a republic, but then became what's called an empire. To have an empire, you need an Emperor. You need one supreme ruler that rules over a large um, area of land. That, that first ruler, that first emperor was called Octavius, and he took the name Augustus. Okay. Now, he was a Caesar. Yeah? The word Caesar is ruler. He's another word basically for ruler. And you know a lot of the German kings called themselves Kaiser, which is the same word. And the, the Russian name for ruler as well, Tsar which is the same word. So the word Caesar is often repeated in all the, all the European uh, uh, cultures, and it's just repeated over and over. So uh, Octavius then became, they gave him a special name, Augustus Caesar. And most of us know Augustus, you've heard of Augustus Caesar. Now, the Roman Empire lasted for quite a long time, but it split. It split into west and east around 395 AD. Okay? The, the Western Empire ended at 476 AD. The Western. So you had the West and you had the East. Right Now, I'll, I'll explain a bit more about that um, as we go on. But what happened was it split up into two separate kingdoms because you had Rome as a base and when Const Constantine... When the Emperor Constantine decided to build another or, or focus on another city called Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, okay, it became his, his centre of power. So he shifted his centre of power and focus from Rome to, to Istanbul, or what was called Constantinople, and there was a power shift. And there, and there became two arms or two parts of the actual, um, of the, the actual uh, kingdom. Now, it didn't just shift, shift it didn't just split politically, it split religiously as well. 
You know why you have the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches not seeing eye to eye? Because the Roman Church, based in Rome, stayed in power over there. And Constantine moving over to what was called the Byzantine part of the empire, the, the eastern part, was your Orthodox side. So the kingdom split, or the empire split, into west, the Roman part, and the east, the Orthodox um, Const Constantinople part. Okay? Now, the Constantinople lasted a further 1,058 years. It lasted a, a, a much longer than the, than the Roman part, because the Roman part had problems. They were being invaded by... Have you heard of the Visigoths, the Goths, the Vandals, the Lombards, the Anglo-Saxons, the depicts the uh, there's a whole heap of these different tribes, Germanic tribes that settled all through the, the Western Europe. You know the reason we have the European nations we have now. You know the Italians. You know who they are. They're called the Lombards because the Lombardians actually settled in in um, in uh, in Italy, the peninsula of Italy. Um, do you know why we have Spanish? Because the Visigoths actually settled in that area there as well. And you have the, the Gauls, which became the French, the Burgundians, which became the Swiss, the Anglo-Saxons, which became the, the English. So each of these tribes, as, as the western part of Rome began to lose power, right, because you had the split, so they lost a fair bit of, of, uh, of things, you have all these Germanic tribes settling down and taking over certain things, each with their own uh, type of culture and language, and they settled into all these different areas. That's why we have, a lot of European cultures have the same, that's where they settled anyway. Now, what happened was the Roman Empire fell, but guess what? The Holy Roman Empire, the actual church, Rome never fell. The Catholic Church never fell. And what happened was, most of these tribes that settled, okay, whether they were Lombards or whether they were Picts or whether they were Visigoths or Goths or Gauls, guess what? They all took on. They took on the Roman Catholic religion because it was the, the, the national religion and um, Constantine had made it the official um, uh, religion of the, the empire anyway. So they all took on the Christian Religion. Well, we'll put that in inverted commas for the moment. Okay. Okay. So just as do you remember the 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 Medes and the Persians were represented by a chest of silver and two arms? Okay. Amazingly enough, two legs represent a divided kingdom of or empire of Rome. How did, how did God know? How did, how did Nebuchadnezzar know? How did uh, Daniel know that the Roman Empire would be split into two and exist for more longer as two than one even? Because God knew. God knew well before um, that it was going to happen. Okay. Let's have a look over here. Let me give you some interesting background though. By the days that Jesus walked the earth, okay, by those days, four great kingdoms had come into play. Okay? 
the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. You might say, what has that got to do with anything? Well, it's got to do an amazing amount. And I'm just going to give you a few points to show you how God directs the course of men. Okay? By the time Jesus walked the earth, we've had these, these three kingdoms had come and gone. One was the supreme ruler of the world, which was the Roman Empire. And these four kingdoms not only influenced the world in Jesus' day, but the Jewish people leading up to Jesus' day for hundreds and hundreds of years. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. okay? And the Jews had been affected and had to adapt to these different cultures that had come in. And I'll show you some, some interesting points that you might not know. After their exile to Babylon, remember I said the Jews had been taken exile to Babylon way back, okay? Um, they lost their freedom. And they were living in a place away from their own hometown, from their own, their own country. But when, when Babylon was overtaken by the Persians, Cyrus had a bit of a liking, took a bit of a liking to the Jews. And he gave them a lot of freedom to do what they wanted. He allowed them to go back home. He allowed them to rebuild their temple. He allowed them to do a whole heap of things. He allowed them to travel wherever they wanted to. So some of them did. Some of them went back to Israel and began to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. But many of the Jews didn't go back. Many of the Jews chose to travel all over the place. To stay in Persia, they travelled north, they travelled east, they travelled west. They settled all over the place because they had complete freedom to do it. Now, mind you, if you've been living for hundreds and hundreds of years in a different culture, right? you're already used to that culture, aren't you? So imagine you've been living for 400 years in Australia. Are you an Australian? Of course you are. So because they'd been living for so many years in these different cultures, they'd adapted to those cultures. They, they, they preserved their word. They preserved the word of God. They preserved their culture from the, from the religious point, but they took on a lot of the, the, the characteristics of the nations around them. So a lot of them didn't choose to, to move back home. Instead, they spread throughout the Persian the Greek and the Roman empires. By the time Jesus came around, and you know the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul travels all around Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, and all these different places. We find we find him going to all these different uh, sites. Guess what? The first place he always goes to was a Jewish community, because there were Jewish communities everywhere. There were Jewish communities in what was called modern, what is modern day Turkey today. He went to the Jewish community in Rome. He went to the Jewish community in, in Greece. So see all the letters that you have to the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the, the, the Philippians, all these different letters. They're all the places that Paul went. And the first place he would go is find a synagogue where the Jews were. And it's the first place he would go and, and preach the gospel. And guess what? From there, it was spread in that area. Do you understand? So the Jews weren't concentrated just in Israel. They were all over the place. And as the disciples went around, as the apostles went around, they would go to the Jews first because that was their, their, their home, their, their people. And then from those, the, the, the gospel and Christianity would spread throughout all of the Roman Empire. So the New Testament letters that we have are a testament to the fact that Jews lived and were spread 
across all the cultures in the world. Now, in the Apostle, in the Apostle Paul's travels, as I've said, the first place he would go to is a synagogue. Now, can anyone find the word synagogue in the Old Testament for me? Why aren't there synagogues in the Old Testament? You know why there are synagogues? Why there aren't synagogues in the Old Testament? But when Jesus comes around, there are synagogues that he that he's brought up in, and there are synagogues all over the world. It's because of that very thing. Because they were away from their from their uh, their people and their country, so they had to form uh, this thing. See what we have here? How we meet every week? They began building community centres for themselves, which became the place where they observed their religious practices and the place where they preserved their culture and their, and their faith. So synagogues were all over the world at that stage. And they could go, Paul could go to a synagogue in Rome, he could go to a synagogue in Greece or in, uh, in Asia Minor because the Jews had been living there for so long, they had to set this thing up for themselves to have a regular place to meet and preserve their culture. That's why you don't find synagogues in the Old Testament, but find them in the New. Because from the time that the Persians allowed them some freedom, they began to build for themselves synagogues everywhere where they were staying. They didn't have a temple in those days, but they had synagogues. So synagogues exist, existed all around the world, and there are still synagogues today. Because they don't have a temple at the moment either. So everywhere where the Jews go, they have what is essentially a church. And do you know where the idea of a church came from? The, the synagogue was the precursor for the church, for the local church that met and preserved the culture and the, then the religious faith. What they were doing, we're doing today. And it was because they were dispersed into all the world. It was because of that dispersion that we today actually are following a similar system. Now, God had it ordained that way. In order to deal with the lack of a temple and the Levitical priesthood, because if you understand the Old Testament with Moses and he, he said that there were priesthood and they had to sacrifice lambs in the temple and stuff like that, what happened was they didn't have that. When you're away from Jerusalem, you don't have a temple. You can only have, There's only one place for a temple. So what they did is they developed a whole range of religious leaders, not just priests. Okay, so by the time that Jesus comes around, by the time that Jesus is born into the world, have you ever wondered where the names Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers come from? Because you don't find them too often in the Old Testament. You don't find any Pharisees and Sadducees in the Old Testament. And scribes are normally only ever scribes for the king, and you don't see lawyers there either. It's because scribes and lawyers came about because these guys once again were living away in remote communities, and scribes and lawyers' jobs were to copy the word of God and to be able to interpret it for the people. So they maintained their religious faith. These guys had the job of not just copying, but knowing, having all the, all the particular knowledge they needed. So they were very important for their culture. Okay? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, Jesus says, For he taught them, Jesus taught them, as one having authority and not the scribes. The reason is, these guys were copiers and they would have to refer to other, other teachers and other people in order to give the interpretation of what it meant and how to apply the word of God. Okay. The other, other uh, two types of people you see are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right? Okay. They're your modern day or your ancient 
Labour and Liberal Party. Is that fair enough? They're your Labour and Liberal Party. The difference is that this, these Labour and Liberal uh, people were religious in nature. So you know how we've got laws and we've got, we've got rules in place in our society and the, and the politicians are meant to understand those rules and how to apply them and they develop new ones. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the job of actually taking God's law and applying it to their culture. They were the ministers of their day, the same as we have ministers. They had rules, they had ob obligations. They were, in a sense, they almost voted in. Okay? But they were the labour and the liberal. The Pharisees were often told off by Jesus because these guys were often very um, legalistic, let's say. Okay? They believed the word of God, and they're probably closer to us than the Sadducees. The Pharisees be actually believed the word of God. They believed all the words in it. The problem that they had was that they added even more to it. And these guys were so... Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Proud and arrogant, that they actually thought themselves more highly than everyone else because they had such a, a detailed knowledge. They became cold to the people. They didn't care about the people. They were more worried about their own pretense and their own show because they had all these things. They wanted um, the, the, the limelight. The Sadducees, on the other hand, didn't believe most of the word of God. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrections. They didn't believe in half the stuff. They were what we call the liberals of our day, not the liberal party, the liberals in terms of the, the, the church, let's say. They didn't believe a lot of it. They had been influenced by the Greeks, which were in charge of most of the world, and their culture. So Greek philosophy and Greek ideas and all those things, they, they took them in and they tried to meld them and, and, and fit them in to God's word, and so you ended up losing half of God's word. That's just a bit of a, a background to the Sadducees. But Jesus warns of both, because both of these guys were off. You can either be so knowledgeable about the word of God and believe every bit of it, but you can become so legalistic that you become useless in being able to help people with their, with their needs and, and condescend to their level that that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were, they were too proud of themselves to be any good to anyone. The Sadducees, on the other hand, didn't believe the word of God enough to be useful at all. So when Jesus says to his disciples, take heed and beware of the beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Now I just want to I want, I want to read that small passage here so you understand the problem with these guys. Matthew 16.6 6 says, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, Why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not understand? Neither remember the five loaves, or the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up, Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets he took up? How is it that you do not understand that I spake, uh, I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should be that you should be, be uh, you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then understood they 
how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Both of these guys had it wrong. Both of these guys weren't fulfilling their obligations to their own people and to God. They were meant to have taken the word of God and actually helped people to bring them in, to lift them up, to educate them in, in how to apply the word of God in their lives and to be faithful in all these things. Instead, they didn't. They were either so concerned for themselves, they neglected other people, or they were so empty in their heads of the word of God, they were useless as well. Two opposite ends of the spectrum, and God tells us to beware of the leaven of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the funny thing is that these guys hated each other. They didn't like each other. One was liberal, one was very, very um, uh, legalistic. They didn't like each other except when Jesus came along. When Jesus came along and told them both off, the first thing that came into their minds was, we've got to get rid of this guy because he, he's a threat to both of us and, bo and to our system. They saw him as a threat to their system and they used the instrument of the Roman Empire to get rid of him, which was crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't a Jewish thing. Crucifixion was a Roman thing. So because the Romans were in charge at that time, they had, uh, you know, you know the, the, the capital punishment system, right? So over the, over the, the ages, different countries have had different types of way of getting rid of criminals. One was to cut heads off. Modern day is maybe electrocution or lock them up forever in a, in a, in a cell. Otherwise, they would shoot them. Uh, in other places, they would, they would uh, I don't know, you can, imagine, you can imagine how many different ways you can get rid of people. The Romans came up with a very novel way of dealing with criminals, and that was the cross. And the reason they came up with the cross is the Romans thought to themselves, if we hang a person up on the side of the road and leave him on display there for a while, it would stop other people from committing the same crimes. So the, the Romans were spectacular at this sort of stuff. They knew how to keep them alive for a long period of time in agony so that people, as they walked past, would look aghast and say, there's no way we're going to be get, you know, getting into that sort of thing. So by the time the, the Romans came around and they introduced this nasty way of, of dealing with criminals, the Sadducees and the Pharisees thought to themselves, hmm, let's hand them over to the Romans. Let, him, let them deal with him because we'll wash our hands of it and then Pilate washed his hands of it and Jesus ended up on a cross. Now you know what's amazing about that whole thing? Is because it is that God had to allow the Romans to become the rules of the world to introduce that type of evil system in order for that evil system to be used to crucify his own son on so that today we can wear a cross. And it reminds us of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. God is indeed amazing. God is indeed amazing. In the dispersion of the Jews over the hundreds and hundreds of years, over the, the whole of the world, these families had to preserve their culture, their faith, and actually stay alive. Because you'll notice that there is no other, there is no other nation on this earth going back thousands and thousands of years that has, that has 
that has been persecuted and vilified as much as the Jewish people. Almost in every, in every age, the Jews are used as a scapegoat to actually give an excuse to wipe them out. Hitler did it in Germany. In Europe, it was done during the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. They used them as a scapegoat for everything that went wrong. So when, it, when the plague, when the bubonic plague came about or when, when some other type of disease came around or some other disaster, it was the Jews' fault. And they would always go after the Jews. But by the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Jews were settled in their own country after all, after all that went on, after their disbursement around the world. And get this, there had to be a woman fit, holy enough, to be chosen by God, living in Bethlehem at that particular time, who was a virgin, who had to be a spouse to a man, but not, but not had, had intercourse yet. And God chose this particular woman. For that woman then to be chosen, she had to have a holy enough husband who wouldn't throw her away because he found her pregnant already. He had to be holy enough that the angel could come to him and he would accept that message from the angel Gabriel and say, don't put your wife away because what's happened to her is something that's, that's never happened to anyone else before. And he does and he obeys. By that stage, imagine all the wars, the conflicts, the things that, that had gone on in the world, there was a temple in, in place that had been built that had to be there at that particular time. There had to be that public style of execution that the Romans had instituted and they had to become the rulers of the world at that stage. There were so many things that had to be just right for Jesus to be born, over 300 prophecies in the Bible that are actually fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no other way to describe it but that God is in complete control. Complete. There is nothing that ever escapes his attention. There is not one decision that men make that he doesn't already know about beforehand. You know, I watched um, I watched Eddie and um, and Vinod play a game of chess at the camp. And I think I sort of I saw them setting up the thing, and then I turned away, had half a cup of coffee, I turned back, and Vinod had Eddie in a checkmate position. I don't think it was that <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can laugh about that. We, we can because it's fun. It's fun to have those sort of games. But you know something? There is not one move that God doesn't know that either men make or angels make or the devil makes that he doesn't know well, well in advance and he's already got it all planned out. There is nothing that escapes his attention. There is no plan or device that, that you can bring against God that will somehow cause God to go, oh really? I didn't see that coming. Because God sees everything from the end, the end from the beginning. You know what's amazing? The Romans were so strong in their power. And look at this. Look how God allows everything to work. The Romans were so strong, they were so militarily powerful, right, that in Jesus' day, there was something that existed called the Pax Romana. Anyone heard of that? The Pax Romana. You know what the Pax Romana means? <clears throat> the Roman peace. Hmm? It existed between, let me see if I get this right, 70 AD right, to 192 AD. 
And during, it, it, it lasted It lasted longer than that. It was a span of 206 years. Sorry, from 27, made a mistake, from 27 BC, before Jesus was born, 27 years before that, to 180 AD, there was this thing called Pax Romana. The Romans had such a peace. They were so powerful that the whole empire, there was no wars. There was absolutely no wars. There was no disturbance. There was no nothing. You know what that means? That when the, when the apostles were, were going around the, the empire to spread the gospel, there was no wars to worry about. They, would, they could do it in relative peace and safety. The Romans had built such a good road system between all the empire that they could safely go around to anywhere in the empire. The Romans had such a safe passage, right, and such a safe system that you could send a letter from Jerusalem and it would, you could be confident it would get to Rome without being, without being um, uh, taken by someone else, by thieves. or whatever. The Romans had such a thing, this, this thing called Pax Romana. Actually, the Pax Romana is said to have been a miracle because prior to those, to those 206 years, there, there had never been a peace for so many centuries for the whole of human history. <laughs> so 200 years, there was complete peace. And you know what it was? Just before Jesus was born and for almost 200 years later. Now, why? Why would that happen just there? I'll tell you why. Because God had it all under control. By the time that Jesus walked the earth, there was one common language. Do you know what that language was? It was Greek. Do you know why it was Greek? Because Alexander the Great had, many years before, conquered the world before the Romans and spread Greek culture and language everywhere. Greek was even, it was even the standard language in Rome. Everyone wrote in Greek. All the letters were written in Greek because it doesn't matter where you sent it, everyone would understand it. It was like, it's like the English of our day almost. So what's amazing, when it comes time for, for God to send his son into the world, when it comes time for, the, for the, the Bible, the New Testament to be written, guess what? There was a language that everyone in the world understood, and it was Greek. And the, every letter in the New Testament is written in Greek for a reason. One, because God knew that everyone could understand that, those letters and those words. And two, the language was so developed... Right? The Greek language was so developed and so precise that they say that Greeks have a word for it. And they did. God knew that when he wrote the words that he intended for men to hear, that every word had the right word in Greek to actually talk about it, to actually express it. And they did. The accuracy of our Bible is founded upon the accuracy of the Greek language. It depends upon the accuracy of the Greek language first, because it was written in Greek. Now, we have the English language, which is developed in, it, in, its, in its own right. But in those days, Greek was the most profound and um, expressive language of them all. You notice that Latin doesn't exist anymore. No one speaks Latin anymore, but Greek still does. and Because Greek was a really expressive language. Okay, let me just close up with, it, with a few thoughts. In all these things... In the rise and the fall of earthly empires and the countless decisions made by men each day of their lives, isn't it absolutely amazing and assuring that, God, assuring that God knows every turn and every step that men would take 
and used everything to achieve his own purposes. When God says something will happen, there is nothing. There is not one little error that, that will happen on the way there. That's why Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings. He setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what's in the darkness and the, and the light dwelleth. With him, there is nothing that God doesn't know. There is nothing that escapes His attention. When it came time for God to, when it came time for the Babylonians to fall over, God had already worked it out. Time for the time for the um, the Persians to come in. When their time was up, God had already ordained it. It was time for the Greeks to come in. When their time was up, God said, "Time for the Romans to come in." God knows every every step before it ever happens. Do you remember I told you two weeks ago that behind the world of men, behind the politics of men, behind the things that men do, there is a spiritual battle that's raging. And I gave you the example of where Daniel, this Daniel, um, there was the, the angel Gabriel was trying to get to him to deliver a message from God. And it says that the prince of Persia withstood him for 21 days. And we, and we, we reasoned that... There is no earthly man, there is no earthly king that can resist an angel of God for 21 days. First of all, you can't even see them, so how can you resist them? So this prince of Persia must have been an angel, a fallen angel, that was contrary to, the, to what God wanted to do. So the prince of Persia fought with Gabriel, took him 21 days to break through, to get this message to Daniel, and the archangel Michael had to help Gabriel to break through in that instance. Ever read the Lamentation in Ezekiel chapter 28? It talks about the king of Tyre. And it talks about this being, this king of Tyre, or Tyrus, being incredibly beautiful, full of wisdom, walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, walking among the fiery stones in heaven. This is not a, this is not a lamentation about a man. This is a lamentation about the devil himself. So we know in the background of men, there is a war raging. There is a, a, a war raging with battle lines and nations and, and hierarchies and those sorts of things. But despite, this is what I didn't tell you last time, despite all of Satan's plans and schemes, all of his planning, all of his attention, he could not stop one detail in God's plan. If God has ordained it, there is not one thing he can do about it. He can fight as hard as he likes. He can rage as much as he likes. When, when, it, comes, when it comes to a, a, a chess game between, between Eddie and Vanud, okay, a chess game between God and Satan is a grandmaster playing a novice. Despite all the spiritual battles from Babylon until Jesus' birth, there is not one prophecy concerning Jesus that Satan could stop. He couldn't stop where he was born, when he was born, how he would live, what he would do. He tried to kill him and he couldn't stop him from rising from the grave. There is nothing that Satan can do. And one of the benefits of studying prophecy is that when we witness in the word of God and through history, the immense power, the wisdom of God in being able to orchestrate all these things and make sure that his will comes to pass then you can't help trust him 
with your own future, can you? Tell me, which of you can't trust God with their future? Is there some, some part of him that you can't, that is untrustworthy? There's, there's some part that you think that he'll let go and forget? Because I'll tell you something, God forgets nothing. We can be utterly bold with our faith. Bold. We can be completely confident when we walk and in this walk that we live. That God knows every detail from now until the end and has perfect control and power over all things. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear. If you are his today, you have nothing to fear in your life. There is nothing that, come, that the Bible says that can come against you. Nothing that can come against you. There's no scheme. There is no device. There is no plan that can come against you as a child of God that will succeed. And it's because God is in complete control. There is every reason for you this morning to have peace and joy and hope if you belong to Jesus today. There is no one who comes near him. He is the ruler and master and knower of all things. And if you are his, and if you are in his hand, there is no one that can ever take you out. The dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar came perfectly true. I haven't finished with this prophecy yet, because I haven't hit the feet. The feet are still to come. Rome's come and gone, but who's replaced Rome? Which world powers replace Rome? You'll have to come back to find out that, that one. Regardless of what the future holds, I want you to look at yourself right now as we close up this, um, this sermon. I want you to focus on yourself. You are a detail that God has not forgotten about. God knows you so intimately that he doesn't just know your name. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your fears. He knows your dreams, your desires, your weaknesses, your strengths. He knows everything about you. You are important to him in every possible way, even though you may not realise it. He says that you are. He says that you're important. And you're important enough that he would send his son to die on a cross for you. So this morning, if you don't, Know Jesus Christ as your Saviour. And you need, don't leave these doors this morning without having that peace, that assurance that you are in God's hand. Because I'll tell you something, and I will guarantee you something this morning. If you are not in God's hand and you're in your own hands, that is a that is a scary place to be. Because you can't guarantee your next minute in your life. There is no security in yourself. You can't even control your next breath. You don't know if your heart will stop in the next minute. And if you, don't, if you can't control your own health, how can you possibly control your eternal destiny? If you choose him today, there is not a power in this universe or outside of it that can take you away from him. I'll close this passage. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, 
we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled shall be saved by his life. If God was able to, while we were his enemies, send his son into the world to save sinners like us and get that job done, how much more will he hold you in his hand and keep you saved? If you want to share, if you want to spend some time and talk later on with me or Brother Eddie or anyone else, you feel comfortable with talking about your eternal security, please come and talk with us. We'd love to share um, what we have with you. So you can have that peace and security as well. God bless you. Thank you. Time for a hymn. And I'll get the hymn book, Brother Eddie.